You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Barry Eads. Jetta of the Lowlands by Ray Cummings. Chapter 5. Mysterious Meeting. Ah, Grant, have you enjoyed yourself? He dismissed his subordinate. I was detained. Sorry. He was smoothly imperturbable. Have you seen everything? Quite a little plant I have here. We shut down early today. I will make ready to close. I followed him about while he arranged for the termination of the day's activities. The clatter of the smelter house was presently still, the men departing. Spawn and I were the last to leave, save for the eight men who were the mine's night guards. They were stalwart, silent fellows, armed with electronic needle projectors. The lights of the mine went low until they were mere pencil points of blue illumination in the glow. The eerie look of the place was intensified by the darkness and silence of the abnormally early nightfall. The fantastic crags stood dark with formless shadow. Spawn stopped to speak to one of the guards. The men wore a gold-trimmed but now dirty white linen uniform, wilted by the heat. The uniform of Narada's police. I remarked it to him. The government met me the men, Spawn explained. Of an ordinary time I have only one guard. But this, then, is not an ordinary time, I hinted. He looked sharply at me, and upon sudden impulse I added, President Mark said something about you having a treasure here, radiumized quicksilver. It was evidently Spawn's desire to appear thoroughly frank with me. He laughed. Well, then, if Marx has told you, then might I not as well admit it. The treasure is here, indeed, yes. Will you like to see it? He led me into a little strong room adjoining the smelter coil rectifiers. He flashed his hand searchlight. On the floor, piled crosswise, were small molded bars of refined quicksilver. Dull, darkened silver ignorance of this world's most precious metal. Quite a treasure, Grant. Here tonight. See, it is radiumized. He snapped off his torch. In the darkness, the little bars glowed iridescent. Tomorrow I will divide with our Narada government. One third for them, and my share I will export. To Great New York, this shipment. Already I have the order for it. He added calmly, The duty is high, Grant. Too bad your big New York market is protected by so large a duty. With my cost of production, these accursed lowland workmen, who demand so much for their labor, and a third of all I produce taken by Narada. There is not much in it for me. He had relighted the room. I could feel his eyes on me, but I said nothing. It was obvious to me now that he knew I was a government customs agent. I said, This certainly interests me, friend Spawn. I'll tell you why some other time. We exchanged significant glances, both of us smiling. Well, I can guess it, young Grant. So here is my treasure. Without the duty I would soon be wealthy. Chut! Why should I roll in pity for myself? There is a duty, and I am an honest man, so I pay it. I said, Aren't you afraid to leave this stored here? I knew that this pile of ingots, the quicksilver in its radiumized form, was worth four or five hundred thousand dollars in American gold coin at the very least. Spawn shrugged. Who would attack it? But of course I would be glad to be rid of it. It is a great responsibility, even though it carries international insurance, to protect my and the Narada government share. He was sealing up the heavy barred portals of the little strong room. There was an alarm detector, 
connected with the office of Narada's police commander. Spawn set the alarm carefully. I have every safeguard, Grant. There is really no danger, he added, as though with sudden thought. Except possibly one. A death bandit named De Boer. Ever you have heard of him? Yes, I have. We climbed into Spawn's small automatic vehicle. The lights of the mine faded behind us as we coasted the winding road down to the village. De Boer, said Spawn, a fellow who lives by his wits in the depths. Near here, perhaps, who knows? They say he has many followers, fifty, a hundred, perhaps. Outlaws. A cut-belly band, it must be. Didn't he once take a hand in Narada's politics, I suggested? Spawn guffawed. That is so. He was once what they called a patriot here. He thought he might be made president. But Marx ran him out. Now he is a bandit. I have believed that American mail ship which sunk last year in the cauldron north of the Nars Sea you remember how it was attacked by bandits? I have always believed that was De Boer's band. We rolled back to Narada. Spawn's manner had again changed. He seemed even more friendly than before, more at his ease with me. We had supper, and smoked together in his living room for half an hour afterward. But my thoughts were more on Jetta than on her father. There was still no evidence of her about the premises. Ah, if I had only known what had taken place there at Spawn's that afternoon while I was at the mine. Soon after supper, Spawn yawned. I think I shall go to bed. His glance was inquiring. What are you going to do? I stood up. I'll go to bed, too. Marx wants to see me early in the morning. You'll be there, Spawn? Yes, we will go together. It was still no more than eight o'clock in the evening. Spawn followed me to my bedroom and left me at its door. Sleep well. I will call you in time. Thanks, Spawn. I wondered if there were irony in his voice as he said good night. No one could have told. I did not go to bed. I sat listening to the silence of my room and the garden, and Spawn's retreating footsteps. He had said he was sleepy, but nevertheless I presently heard him across the patio. He was apparently in the kitchen, cleaning away our meal, to judge by the rattling of his pans. It was as yet not much after hour eight of the evening. The hours before my tryst with Jetta seemed an interminable time to wait. She might not come, though, I was afraid, until midnight. At all events, I felt I had some hours yet, and it occurred to me that the evening was not yet too far advanced for me to call upon Perona. He lived not far from here, I had learned. I wanted to see this beribboned old minister of Narada's internal affairs. I would use as my excuse a desire to discuss further the possibility of smuggler being here in Narada. I put on my hat and light jacket, verified that my dirk was readily accessible, and sealed up my room. Spawn apparently was still in the kitchen. I got out of the house, I felt sure, without him being aware of it. The Narada streets were quiet. There was a few pedestrians, and none of them paid much attention to me. It was no more than ten minutes' walk to Perona's house. His house was set back from the road, surrounded by luxurious vegetation. There was a gate in front of the garden, and another, a hundred feet or so, along a small alleyway which bordered the ground to my left. I was about to enter the front gate when the sight of a figure passing under the garden foliage checked me. It was a man, evidently coming from the house, and headed toward the side gate. He went through a shaft of light that slanted from one of the lower windows of the house. Perona. I was sure it was he. His slight figure, with a gay tri-cornered hat, 
a short tasseled cloak hanging from his shoulders. He was alone, walking fast. He evidently had not seen me. I crouched outside the high front wall, and through its lattice bars I saw him reach the side gate, open it swiftly, pass through, and close it after him. There was something furtive about his manner, for all he was undisguised. I decided to follow him. The front street, fortunately, was deserted at the moment. I waited long enough for him to appear. But he did not, and when I ran to the alley corner, chancing bumping squarely into him, I saw him far down its dim, narrow length, where it opened into the back street which bordered his grounds to the rear. He turned to the left and shot a swift glance up the alley, which I anticipated, provided for by drawing back. When I looked again, he was gone. I have had some experience at playing the shadow but it was not easy here along the almost deserted and fairly bright Narada streets. Perona was walking swiftly down the slope toward the outskirts of the village, where it bordered upon the Nars Sea. For a time I thought he was headed for the landing field, but at a cross path he turned sharply to the right, away from the field, whose sheen of lights I could now see down the rocky defile ahead of me. There was nothing but broken, precipitous rocky country ahead of him, into which this path he had taken was winding. What could Perona, a minister, be engaged in, wandering off alone into this black, deserted region? It was black indeed by now. The village was soon far behind us. A storm was in the night air, a wind off the sea, solid black clouds overhead blotted out the moon and stars. The crags and butts and gullies of this tumbled area loomed barely visible about me. There were times when only my feel of the path under my feet kept me from straying to fall into a ravine or crevice. I prowled perhaps two hundred yards behind Perona. He was using a tiny hand-flash now. It bobbed and winked in the darkness ahead, vanishing sometimes when a curve in the path hit him, or when he plunged down into a gully and up again. I had no search-beam, nor would I have dared use one. Perona could too obviously have seen that someone was following him. There was half a mile of this, I think, though it seemed interminable. I could hear the sea, rising with the wind, pounding against the rocks to my left. Then a distance ahead I saw lights moving, Perona's and others, three or four of them. Their combined glow made a radiance which illumined the path and rocks. I could see the figures of several men whom Perona had joined. They stood a moment and then moved off. To the right a ragged cliff wall towered the path. The spots of light bobbed toward it. I caught the vague outline of a huge broken opening, like a cave mouth in the cliff. The lights were swallowed by it. I crept cautiously forward. End of section 8